Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hello. Aaron. Hey, man. It's Luke. Hey, Luke. How are you? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm fine. I got a trivia question for you. Oh, boy. This is a hard one. Okay. But I think you can get it. Okay. 30 years ago this week, Mm -hmm. what future former U.S. president who is known for being racist, misogynist, homophobe, (laughs) very controversial on social media, got engaged to Marla Maples, uh-huh. giving her a seven and a half carat diamond ring because he was a billionaire hotel tycoon. Take your time. <laughs> Could you repeat the question? <laughs> <laughs> Is it? Oh my God, I know this. It was I'm, Donald Trump. Oh God. You weren't going to get it, so I'm just giving it to you. It. it was Donald Trump. Dang. You were the one person I thought might know the answer to that question and you also, I, yeah, you also you know, didn't I get just it, so I think I blocked him from my memory. Yeah. <sighs> so thanks for bringing that back into my life. You're welcome. Hey, I uh, hope you listen to this episode. It's going to be a fun one. Well, I'm going to unless there's a lot of Donald Trump talk and then I'm there's, out. Th- that was it. That was the end of it. Okay, good. <laughs> because this I'm is in. unbiased, <laughs> completely unbiased. Yeah, no reporting. spin. The no spin zone. <laughs> Anyway, all right, man. Well, hey, I'm going to start the episode, and hopefully you'll come back on the show someday. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. All right. Okay. See you later. Okay. Well, anyway, bye. From Mill U Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Bronner. This is Season 3, Episode 25. Two Terminators and an Axel Rose. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, July 6th, 1991. Thank you, friends, for joining me once again on 30 Pop. I'm so glad you're here. If you're a newcomer to this weekly stroll down memory lane, welcome. I'm glad you're here too. In no way do I feel entitled to your attention, but I am grateful for it, and I'll do my very best to make it worth the next half hour or so of your time. Speaking of time, let's synchronize our watches to this precise moment exactly 30 years ago. The year is 1991. You have 30 years less wear and tear on your body. Your knees don't hurt. You don't even know what a 401k is. You don't owe anyone anything. Not your money. Not your time, not even your homework, because it's summertime. DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince are on the radio telling you all about it. Marky Mark and his funky bunch are putting out all the good vibrations, and life is sweet. So grab a snow cone, kick off your Nikes, and let's take a look around, shall we? The number one album in the country this week in 1991 for the first of three consecutive weeks, despite very little love from critics, was Van Halen's For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge, or F-U-C-K for short. Sorry, Mom. This album was, as we discussed a couple weeks back, not good. 
Fans were clearly buying it, or it wouldn't be at the top, but in the ears of most music critics, this album was a big miss for the rock legends. I can't confirm one way or another, as I'm not sure I've ever heard a single song on this album. I will, in this case, choose to trust the critics, since they were so nearly unanimous in their disdain for the record. Apologies to any current or former Van Halen heads in the audience, it's nothing personal. Rock music just made me dizzy as a kid. I was far more interested in hip-hop and all its various forms at the time, which meant, for me, this was a great week. Among the many new albums that hit shelves this week in 1991 were a number of notable rap projects. On July 1st, 1991, Digital Underground released a gold-selling six-song project entitled simply, This is an EP Release. Now, full disclosure, there are mixed reports online as to when this project actually released. Some saying the project released on January 15th of 91, while others say July 1st. I do know the film, Nothing But Trouble, which featured the biggest track from this record, same song, released on February 15th. But I can't be sure about the CP. January 15th was a Tuesday, though, which is the day new music typically releases, and July 1st was a Monday, so it's highly possible that 30 years ago this week, this album was already six months old. But honestly, who cares? It's Digital Underground, and this was the project that introduced the world to Tupac, so it's worth our time either way. On July 2nd, 1991, we saw a number of other releases as well, including the sophomore studio album from the storytelling, eye-patch-donning British-American rap icon, Slick Rick, The Ruler's Back. This album was recorded while Rick was out on bail for second-degree murder charges after an incident in 1990 that had him taking four shots at a former bodyguard who'd been harassing and threatening the rapper for terminating him. One shot hit the former bodyguard and another hit a passerby in the foot, but neither injury was fatal, or even that severe from what I've read. Rick was found guilty and wound up serving five years in prison, two for the attempted murder and three for an issue with his immigration status. And I can't imagine a more concise or accurate summary of American priorities. The album fared pretty well, but wasn't quite as universally adored by critics as his iconic platinum-selling 1988 debut, The Great Adventures of Slick Rick. Also released on July 2nd was the just barely platinum-selling third studio album by hip-hop ensemble Heavy D and the Boys, entitled Peaceful Journey. Heavy D and the Boys were made up of rapper Heavy D, obviously, producer Eddie F., and dancers and backing vocalists G-Wiz and Trouble T-Roy. Peaceful Journey was the first album released following the tragic death of 22-year-old Troy Trouble T-Roy Dixon, while the group was on tour in 1990. The album was dedicated to his memory. I wasn't like a Heavy D mega fan, but I did always like him. And I will say all my favorite Heavy D tunes came from this album. There were also a couple notable releases outside the hip-hop world 30 years ago this week. Namely, the eighth studio album from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Into the Great Wide Open. This album was a success all around, with most critics agreeing that it was one of the strongest entries into the band's catalog to date, and sales topping 2 million units. Those numbers would make any artist proud, and rich, but they paled in comparison to the Petty album that preceded this one, 1989's five-time platinum-selling Full Moon Fever, which we covered way back in season one of this show. Now, I'm going to confess something. When I was a kid, and honestly up into my 20s, with the exception of Free Fallen, Tom Petty's music was pretty much lost on me. It sounded so old and emotionless. I know. All I can say is I was wrong. 
I was young and hadn't expanded my musical horizons beyond the hip-hop and R&B with which I'd fallen so deeply in love and to which I'd tied so much of my identity. I may have been late to the party, but I get it now. Tom Petty was excellent, and I only wish I'd had the ears to hear it sooner. The last major album released from this week in 1991 was the double-platinum self-titled debut from country artist Trisha Yearwood. This record opened with perhaps the biggest song of Yearwood's career, She's in Love with the Boy, which we'll discuss again very soon. It also included two songs co-written by the king of country music at the time, Garth Brooks, each of which also featured Brooks singing background vocals. Unbeknownst to both of them at the time, presumably, was the fact that 14 years later they'd become husband and wife, and this December they'll celebrate 16 years of marriage. And speaking of Garth Brooks, 30 years ago this week his song, The Thunder Rolls, lost its spot at the top of the Billboard Hot Country chart after a brief two-week reign. The song that replaced it was the lead single and title track from Alan Jackson's second studio album, Don't Rock the Jukebox. Don't rock the jukebox Wanna hear some John? My heart ain't ready for the rolling stone. I don't feel like rocking since my baby's gone. So don't rock the jukebox, play me a country song. You don't rock the jukebox, play me a country song. The music video for this club banger opens with Jackson sharing a story about the song's origins. He and his band were playing a four or five night set of shows at a truck stop bar in Virginia, and near the end of one of those nights, during a break, he walked over to the jukebox where his bass player was already shuffling through the albums. Jackson leaned on the corner of the clunky old machine, which was missing a leg, and his bass player warned him not to rock it. As in, this thing is wobbly, don't rock it. Can you imagine how this song would have fared if his bass player had said in that serendipitous moment, don't wobble the jukebox? Me neither. The number one song on the hot rap chart this week in 1991 was Homie Don't Play That by Terminator X. You may not recognize the name Terminator X, and you may not remember this song specifically, as I didn't, but I'd be willing to bet you know his music. Terminator X is a founding member and the original DJ for the legendary rap group Public Enemy. He may not have the name recognition of fellow founding members Chuck D and Flava Flav, but he was vital to the group's early success and a key part of literally all their biggest and best albums. This song was one of two singles from the first of two solo records by Terminator X, each of which featured various MCs rapping over X's beats, kind of like DJ Khaled does today. This record was entitled Terminator X and the Valley of Jeep Beats, an especially confusing title considering beats is spelled like the root vegetable rather than the repeating pattern of drum sounds with which a DJ would more commonly be associated. The MCs heard in this song were a lesser-known group called Bonnie and Clyde. The last little bit of music news from this week in 1991 provides a little bit of interesting synergy to this episode, which I'll get to in a bit. On July 2nd, 1991, during a show in St. Louis, Missouri on their Use Your Illusion tour, Guns N' Roses frontman Axl Rose assaulted a fan near the front row for taking pictures during the show without apparently being authorized to do so. 
Rose made repeated requests of the venue's security to confiscate the camera before taking matters into his own hands. After the attack, Rose angrily yelled into the mic, Thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home. And he stormed off stage. What followed became known as the Riverport Riot, when fans lost their minds and began destroying the venue, Riverport Amphitheater, in protest. Over 60 people were injured, and the total estimated cost of the damage to the venue was between two dollars and $300,000. Rose was fined $50,000, charged with one count of property damage and four counts of misdemeanor assault, and Guns N' Roses was banned from returning to St. Louis. However, in 2017, the ban was lifted and the band returned for the first U.S. date of their Not In This Lifetime tour. The major sports headlines 30 years ago this week included the announcement on July 5, 1991 by Major League Baseball that their owners approved both the Colorado Rockies and the Florida Marlins as new National League franchises eligible for play in the 1993 season. And on July 6, 1991, in the Wimbledon Women's Tennis Open, Steffi Graf beat Gabriella Sabatini for her third Wimbledon crown. If there were a competition between those two headlines for which one interested me least in 1991, it would have ended in a tie. In Hollywood this week in 1991, we got two sequels, one which was actually worth watching. The other one was the far inferior sequel to the 1990 surprise blockbuster, Problem Child. Welcome to Mortville. A great place to live. A great place to play. A great place to raise a kid. But not this kid. That's right. Bad Junior's back. And this time... You little psycho. He has a problem. She is insane. She's usually responsible for her share of the action. This is going to feel so good. She's an amateur. Nobody has caused the amount of destruction Junior has. The salad is infested. You disgusting kid. I'm sure he's a nuisance in that little town you're from. But now you're in Mortville, and around here, Trixie runs the show. I hate children. Bad the Oh, here, let's be terrible kids. C2. Problem child. Two. We can't even figure out what they did to that dog. While this movie didn't have even half the commercial success of its predecessor, it still did relatively well at the box office. It was produced on a budget of around $15 million and grossed around $32 million worldwide. Almost exactly the same amount the other premiering sequel made on just this, its opening weekend. The $100 million James Cameron behemoth, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Same make. These were taken at the West Highland Police Station, 1984. You were there. Same model. These were taken today. You have to let me see my son. He's in great danger. New mission. 
he was programmed to destroy the future. You don't know what it's like to try to kill one of these things. Now his mission... Get down. ...is to protect it. Mom! Come with me if you want to live. You're really real. His loyalty is to a child. Who sent you? You did. 35 years from now. And his enemy... He's a Terminator like you, right? Not like me. ...is the deadliest machine ever built. Can it be destroyed? Unknown. This time, there are two. Terminator 2. You just can't go around killing people. Why? If you thought you had seen it all... Stay down! Go! Now! We gotta stick together! Arnold Schwarzenegger. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. This time, he's back. For good. Trust me. This is wild to me. This sequel was produced only seven years after the original. The first film cost a total of $6.4 million to produce and grossed $78 million worldwide. A very solid return on a very minimal budget. This sequel, though, again, only seven years later, cost $102 million to produce and grossed well over half a billion dollars worldwide. This was by far the most lucrative film in this nearly $2 billion franchise. Adjusted for inflation, it remains the top-grossing R-rated action film of all time. And let's be honest, it's the best of the now six films in the franchise. The original is excellent as well, but Judgment Day is just on a whole different level. I rewatched it this week as well as the original, and while the effects certainly don't live up to today's standards, they are still so impressive in the context of what was happening in movies at that time. One of the scenes that jumped out at me this time was the one in which the T-1000, played by Robert Patrick, is chasing down John Connor, played by 13-year-old Edward Furlong, on his dirt bike. The scene looks so real. Not like it was filmed at a slower speed so Patrick could keep up with the bike and then sped up in post-production. Turns out, that's because it was real. Apparently, Robert Patrick endured rigorous training, learning to run full speed only breathing through his nose so as to appear as though it weren't difficult in any way. And he trained hard enough to where it was apparently pretty easy to catch Furlong on the dirt bike. Believe it or not, he supposedly actually had to slow down to avoid outrunning the bike. Unbelievable. Another effect that looked too good to be fake, in the scene in which the T-1000 takes the shape of Sarah Connor, played by Linda Hamilton and the two appear next to each other? Well, again, not a special effect. That was apparently Linda Hamilton's identical twin sister, Leslie, and that scene was the only acting credit of her career, although technically she did also appear in another deleted scene as well. The same was true for the security guard in the psychiatric prison where Sarah Connor was being held, whose form the T-1000 also takes. That was twin brothers Don and Dan Stanton. Another one. The scene in which Sarah Connor escapes that prison by picking the lock to her room with a broken paperclip? Yep, she actually did that. Linda Hamilton learned to pick locks for that scene. There is so much more I could share about this movie, and I will, but I'll save some for later. We'll have plenty more time to cover this one as it remains on top for several weeks and ends up being nominated for several Oscars. 
Plenty more to come. But before I move on, the synergy that I mentioned earlier. In one of the opening scenes of this movie, John Connor is shown riding on a dirt bike wearing a public enemy shirt, the group co-founded by Terminator X, who had the number one song on the Hot Rap chart this week in 1991, and listening to Guns N' Roses, fronted by Axl Rose, who was making all sorts of headlines this week on a boombox. And I just think that's kind of fun. The last little bit of news from this week in 1991 is unfortunately sad news. On July 1st, 1991, at only 54 years of age, actor Michael Landon died of pancreatic cancer, less than three months after being diagnosed. He left behind nine children and a truly incredible body of work. Sad stuff. I hate to end on a sad note, though, so instead, I'll end on a grateful one. Grateful to each and every one of you for listening to this episode of 30 Pop. I say it all the time, but I really mean it. I love making this show, and I'm so thankful you're listening. If you love this show and want to help it reach as many folks as possible, would you do me a favor and share it with just one person this week? Anyone you know who may share in our mutual love for retro pop culture. Thank you again, friends. I'll be back next week with some seriously amazing new movie premieres, including one of two back-to-back very different Keanu Reeves movies. You know we love Keanu Reeves on this show. Until then, remember, there is no fate but what we make for ourselves. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. 